It's time for InsureTalk with insurance industry tech geek and Guidewire chief evangelist, Laura Drabik. In this podcast series, we don't just talk about innovative ideas in PNC insurance. We talk with industry trailblazers about the big ideas they made happen and how they did it. If you're looking for insights on the trends and technologies reshaping the industry, an all-new InsureTalk starts now. Welcome to InsureTalk. My name is Laura Drabik, and I'm the Chief Evangelist at Guidewire. In this episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Michael Hall, Vice President of Cannabis Operations for Stockton, California-based Golden Bear Insurance. Michael has more than a decade of experience in the insurance industry, working at BMS Group, Swiss Re, and Admiral Insurance Group. PNC Insurance is also quite literally in his blood. Golden Bear Insurance was founded in 1978 by his grandfather, Michael J. Hall, and is currently run by Michael's father, Rupert Hall. In 2017, Golden Bear became the first admitted insurer to be approved to sell cannabis business insurance in California. And that is the topic of what I believe is only our second podcast episode. This time out, we'll be getting into the weeds, so to speak, to gain a perspective on the evolution of insuring the cannabis industry. Hello, Michael. Thank you for joining my podcast. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. Golden Bear provides commercial property casualty, professional liability, and residential insurance in 37 states. But in 2017, it became the first admitted insurer to sell cannabis business insurance in California. That was just a year after the state passed its adult use law and only a few months before the sale of cannabis from licensed retail outlets became legal. What did Golden Bear see in this nascent market that made it want to become the vanguard in this space? That's an interesting story, Laura. It wasn't as much that we looked at this cannabis market that was coming into being in California and has now become a pretty large industry in the state as much as the industry found us. And there's two things that happened back in 2017 that got us into the industry. The first being that we moved into a new building and found out that the building we had just purchased came with a cannabis license. It was one of the only two dispensary licenses in the state. And we became a landlord for one of the two dispensaries here in Stockton, California at the time and started to learn a little bit more about the business. And at the same time, the Department of Insurance in California had been given a mandate by the legislature to build an admitted insurance market here in California. And when all the big guys said, no, we can't do that. Cannabis is federally illegal. It's a Schedule One drug. We're publicly traded or we've got institutional ownership that is going to say, hey, hey, that's a no-go. They can't cross that line. And so the California Department of Insurance came to us, actually, and our CEO on tours of cannabis facilities and did really a full court press with our underwriting staff here at Golden Bear to try to get us into the business. And because we had a level of familiarity with our downstairs tenant being a cannabis dispensary and getting to know the owner of that business and seeing there was actually some pretty legitimate people who were moving into that green rush in the early days there. And that really brought us in. And so in 2017, we worked with the department to do what was a pretty quick filing to write cannabis package business across the state of California and now in nearly 36 states. Wow, what an interesting story and how fortuitous that the building came with a cannabis license. Our new building came with a projector and I was happy just to have that. So. <laughs> You cover cultivators, manufacturers, retail dispensaries, warehouse operations, distribution operations, testing labs, and short-term events. Beyond being the first mover within this space, what differentiates Golden Bear from other providers in the market? 
Thanks for asking that, Laura. One of the main things I think that differentiates us from most of our competitors is that while there's a few other full stack insurance carriers who are in the space, all of those companies really offer monoline options. We're the only true insurance company that offers a package. There are a lot of MGA package offerings, you know, different brokers who can put together a package. But as far as a single carrier you can go to, especially on an admitted basis and get package coverage with good forms, terms and conditions in an easy way, especially for small and mid-sized cannabis companies is where we differentiate ourselves. May I ask, what's in that package? So we write the property, the general liability, and the products liability for these companies. So we do basically everything but the auto and the workers' compensation. And in cannabis, it's a little different, in, at least here in California, where the state fund ends up writing most of the cannabis workers' comp business, from what I'm told, and tends to be the market first resort rather than last resort. We'll write basically everything else. If you're a retail dispensary, a cultivator, manufacturer, or anyone in the seed-to-sale chain of cannabis commerce. Yeah, I can see how that makes it really easy for a smaller or a mid-sized business. So cannabis-related businesses or CRBs have unique risk issues. They face inventory theft and vulnerability to fire from their own operations and wildfire when it comes to crops. There are also product liability issues for edibles, plus all the workers' compensation and real estate liabilities faced by agricultural and manufacturing businesses. But up and above all that, there is the threat of crime because cannabis is still a controlled substance at the federal level, access to banking in this sector is limited. An estimated 70% of CRBs remain all cash operations, posing significant safety and security risks for an industry moving more than $33 billion of cannabis in 2022. What are the most pressing risks associated with insuring CRBs in your view now and over the next few years as the market evolves? Cannabis in its really early days was a purely cash business. I mean, there's some ways around that. Different companies are getting access to banking. There's ways to move forward, but not anywhere near what you would think of or what resembles what traditional businesses have access to in terms of financial services and financial products. Now, cannabis is still a Schedule One drug. There's been some conversations about changing that scheduling to Schedule Three, and there's also some other legislation like the Safe Banking Act that would allow banks to bank cannabis businesses that are operating legally in their respective states. But until you get some kind of change on that side, you're right. Right now, theft, vandalism, other concerns over crime and violence, assault and battery are really the biggest risks that face your average cannabis business. They're the number one cause of loss for us as a cannabis insurer, especially writing smaller sized cannabis businesses, a lot of mom and pop dispensaries, distributors, manufacturers, and the criminal element can't be understated. And a lot of that has to do with these being cash businesses. And the criminals think that they're right for the picking and they can take advantage of the fact that a lot of these companies do have a lot of cash laying around or the rumor is that they do because of the past they did before they were able to access some banking services. I think going forward, as we start to see the safe banking law or some sort of legislative workaround or a compromise that allows cannabis companies to start accessing more traditional financial services, that you are going to see that the new set of risks arise. And I think the big set of risks that's on the horizon is the change in the way cannabis is being researched. So prior to the last two or three years, I think the first came in the farm bill in 2018, cannabis could not be studied 
other than in a handful of places. You know, there was the Federal Research Lab down in Mississippi and I believe two or three other locations where you could do research on cannabis. But otherwise, it was illegal, carte blanche prohibitions on studying it. And so there's not a lot of good long-term information on what's going to happen to long-term mental health and its effects of heavy cannabis use is one thing people are looking at. Edibles and high dosages for people who haven't been exposed, potentials for psychosis and issues like that are what we have our eyes out for. So there's a lot changing because of all of the new research that's being done. Scientists are finally getting access to go and study what are the long-term real effects of cannabis, both positive and negative. And so we've got our eye close on what's coming out of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that, that it was also illegal even to study it. That's a really interesting perspective about what will be the long-term use of heavy dosages. Michael, how do you conduct business with CRB customers that are cash only? That seems incredibly frightening and also very risk-filled for these poor mom-and-pop dispensaries. You know, we are a little removed in the sense that we operate our business entirely through a network of wholesale brokers who are working in turn with their retail partners who then work with the insurance. So I hear stories, especially from some of the retail agents and the wholesalers who have been in the cannabis insurance business for 20 plus years back when there were only a handful of retail medical marijuana dispensaries here in California, Washington and the West Coast. And they have these stories about being paid in lump sums and large sums of cash or working with attorneys back in the early 2000s to get some of this done. But for us, it really operates just like any traditional line of insurance. They pay their bills through the broker. They're able to access some financial services. It's not the full cash business that it used to be, but some of the stories that you hear from people are pretty funny. Oh, please do share, Michael, one of those funny stories with us. Imagine some early 2000s hippie-looking dispensary owner with $120,000 in a backpack walking around downtown San Francisco, going over to their insurance broker's office to pay the policy on some $50 million facility that they own that they're growing in on the Central Coast. Yeah, things like that. So, you know, so probably some more interesting times back when all this was coming about. But you know, now there's a pretty good infrastructure. I first started writing cannabis insurance in 2018. There were about four or five companies nationwide who are involved in insuring cannabis. And now it's 35 plus. I mean, some of the really large insurance carriers from Berkshire Hathaway to Progressive are writing cannabis insurance coverage now in some form or another. So it's really evolved over the last 10 years into a, if not mature, maturing insurance marketplace. Awesome. Great information. When we come back after this short break, we'll continue our conversation with Michael Hall, Vice President of Cannabis Operations at Golden Bear Insurance. Digging in Sure Talk with Laura Drabik? Be sure to subscribe on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, rate the show on Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Now, let's get back to the show. And welcome back to InsureTalk. This is Laura Drabeck, and I'm talking about the future of insuring the cannabis industry with Michael Hall, Vice President of Cannabis Operations at Golden Bear Insurance. In the six years since Golden Bear began insuring cannabis-related business, you, and you just mentioned it, you've seen the market increase as more states legalize cannabis use, and also new competitors, as you again mentioned, have entered the market. In 2022, for example, six insurers, now there's well over 30. At an industry event last fall, you didn't sound worried, Michael, about losing business in a market where potential customers have more option, even as rates have fallen as much as 50%. Why is that so? The main reason is just the growth of this 
cannabis industry. I mean, it's growing at 100% year over year. New states are opening up left and right. I mean, I'm sure there were four insurance marketplaces writing it in 2018, but I think there were only six or maybe eight states that had legalized. We're up to 36 states right now. There's new states opening up every few months. I mean, Minnesota just legalized and we're talking to brokers over there. New York is still waiting. So there's a whole bunch of licenses that will be issued there. Florida will probably go recreational. And so there's some major states that have yet to legalize and to build out a state cannabis marketplace. And so with that growth, I think it can support all of the new additions to the marketplace, at least for a while. But it's not the green rush that it was back in 2018. Wow. 100% growth rate year over year. So there's enough room for everyone. So let's talk about the reinsurance market and how it is evolving in the cannabis space. With everything that we've seen in Florida after Hurricane Ian and Adalia and with wildfires in California, you have a lot of large reinsurers pulling out of particularly vulnerable markets who might start looking for business they think might be more profitable to write. So how might the overall hardening reinsurance market impact opportunities in the cannabis sector? That's a really interesting question because I write business in a number of lines other than cannabis and watching what's happening in the property market, especially here in California, a huge property insurance crisis is going on in the state. But if you're a cannabis operator, you know you're going to find insurance and you're going to find it at competitive rates, which is really kind of a unique situation compared to where we were six years ago where anyone could get insurance but a cannabis operator. And I think a lot of that has to come with what you mentioned. Reinsurance companies have decided, hey, we haven't made any money writing in Florida. We haven't made any money writing in wildfire areas, but these cannabis insurance companies seem to be making some good money. And so they're putting a lot of new capital to work in cannabis as a particular specialty niche. I mean, I saw news yesterday that another MGA in the cannabis insurance market has $50 million in new property limits, which is something that you're just not seeing anywhere else in the traditional property insurance marketplace. And so that's been an interesting dynamic as you look at reinsurers rebalancing their portfolios and trying to get away from property cat risk. We've discussed some risks facing CRBs, but let's talk about managing those policies. How do cannabis industry claims differ from standard line claims? There is one unique thing about cannabis companies, and that is how regulated they are compared to your average, mostly retail-driven business. And so every cannabis company has lawyers on the payroll. They've got they need attorneys to manage their regulatory compliance, to set up LLCs that they have to have to run the various aspects of their business. And so when you're dealing with a cannabis claim, you know that whatever the claim is, it's probably coming in litigated just because there's enough lawyers on the payroll that they're the ones that are going to handle that claim. But outside of that, it tends to be pretty generic business. I mean, in the early days, there were a lot of legacy operators who had come in from the black market era of cannabis, but most of those companies that had caused some issues have really lost out to a lot of more business savvy enterprises. And when it comes to claims, they're as happy as any other claimant, of course. You know, they've just had a first party property loss, a, a fire in their grow room. They're going through a tough time, but I wouldn't say they're any different than the claimants we get in our hospitality bars and taverns program or what we have in our traditional package division. You know, they're business owners just like anybody else. And every year they're getting more professional. Golden Bear went live with its Claim Center implementation in March of this year. Congratulations. You moved from an AS400 legacy system to a modern cloud-based solution. How has this move benefited your claim staff as well as your policyholders? It's been really night and day in terms of the workflows that our adjusters and our claim support staff are using. I mean, the huge improvement in their efficiency by 
way, being able to see everything in one place, being able to pass information back and forth. And it's only been since April and we didn't pull forward legacy data yet. And so over the last month or two, the data is really starting to fill up in there. We're starting to be able to draw insights out of that. It's still in our early days, but it's definitely been a huge improvement. I know personally, I'm very happy. I don't have to go back into the old AS400 green screens to pull information anymore and I can get everything right at my fingertips. We hear that a lot from our customers. They, they really appreciate being able to access one system of record, which is, of course, Guidewire, and not having to flip back and forth between screens. Thanks for sharing. What can you share about metrics or how about some learnings you gained in your cloud journey so far and how might unifying the same kind of cloud connected data and functionality with the policy side of your business further benefit your organization? I would say our big takeaway as Golden Bear in the journey for our, our cloud implementation was to take things off the shelf. We were really happy that we were able to finish our project a few weeks ahead of time at a few thousand dollars under budget. So that was really a praiseworthy thing for the people over at our SI partner, Black Home Accenture, and for our, our internal team, property claims manager, George Elias, and our claims manager, Kim Moody, as well as our internal IT team. I mean, they did a, a fantastic job. And I think that the basis of that was understanding that they needed to figure out how to best align our current business practices with Guidewire while maintaining a relatively you know, 90 plus percent out of the box implementation. That's incredible. And to anyone listening who is starting their implementation journey, this is one bit of advice that I would recommend to anyone. And that would be exactly what Michael said. Take it out of the box, take it off the shelf. The new business processes are what are in the system. And then you mold and adjust your processes to ensure that everything can work together. So well put, Michael. Thank you. Let's pivot to the decade ahead as the cannabis industry grows. Last year, the global legal cannabis market was valued at as much as $33 billion and is projected to top $134 billion by 2030. We've discussed the most well-established operational aspects of the cannabis industry that represent opportunities for PNC insurers. But how do you see this evolving as the industry matures? For example, just as with most industries as they mature, DNO, directors and officer's insurance has grown in importance for the cannabis sector. After all, cannabis companies must protect the organization and its executives from claims against them, including suits from customers, competitors, investors, and other shareholders. Michael, what are things carriers should think about when considering adding this kind of coverage to CRBs and what other opportunities do you see opening up on the horizon? That's an interesting question because usually you do see a lot more maturity in any business marketplace. They start by buying more coverages, they start buying more limits. But there's an issue that affects cannabis companies in particular, and that's Section 280E of the IRS tax code that says that they can't write off basically any of their business expenses because they're selling a Schedule 1 product. And as a result, they can't write off their insurance costs. And some of these cannabis companies are paying effective tax rates as high as 75% of their net income right now because they're taxed on their net income rather than on their gross profits. And so until you see some sort of movement of regulatory standpoint that gives these guys a little bit more breathing room. I don't see that the demand is really there for those products. And you know, as an example, we launched a DNO product for cannabis companies about two years ago and sent out hundreds and hundreds of quotations for what ended up being a few dozen policies. The demand wasn't there. And I think that's really just a consequence of the 280E tax provisions and the fact that these cannabis companies, at least right now, are really struggling from a cash flow perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. And 
there's opportunities and risks to cover with the ever-expanding number of cannabis-infused products from gummies to gourmet meals. For example, we've seen a number of recent suits around gummies infused with THC, which like CBD is a cannabinoid derived from cannabis. Where are cannabis-infused goods going next and what do they mean for insurers? So I would say that cannabis-infused goods are the single largest products liability risk that cannabis companies face today. And they're insurable. We insure them. And so do most of the companies that are writing products liability for cannabis companies. I mean, there is a big difference in some of the coverage forms out there. Some of them are excluding the health effects of cannabis gummies. They're excluding heart attacks and issues like this. But we see quite a number of claims arising out of edibles from fatalities all the way down to silly ones or seemingly silly of people who say they took the edible and they still six months later feel like they're on the edible and they're looking for a claim settlement out of that. And so there's quite a lot of risk around the edibles just because like you mentioned, you know, people don't know what their dosage is or should be and they end up taking a higher dosage. I think hopefully some of that moves away. I know California just ended up vetoing a bill that would have changed some of the labeling requirements for cannabis companies because they were a little onerous, but they're going back now and looking at trying to update some of those labeling and doing more education from that end. But in the meantime, it remains one of the largest risks that insurers are covering when they write products liability for cannabis company. Now that you've enlightened me with this information, it does give me pause about consuming any edibles moving forward. Thanks for sharing that. Great. Thanks, Michael. We'll continue the conversation on the other side of this break. So don't go anywhere. Loving Insure Talk with Laura Drabik. For more expert insights and inspiration, subscribe to Laura's email newsletter at drabikdigest.com. Your one-stop resource for Laura's latest blog posts, videos, podcasts, articles, and more. That's www.drabikdigest.com. Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back. This is Insure Talk with Laura Drabik, where I'm talking with Michael Hall, Vice President of Cannabis Operations at Golden Bear Insurance, about the future of insuring the cannabis industry. No discussion about the future of insuring the cannabis industry is complete without talking about the legal and regulatory disconnect between the states and the federal government. So at the federal level, cannabis remains a Schedule One substance, putting it in the same category as heroin and LSD. And today, cannabis businesses are not federally legal. That makes them subject to a federal tax code that prohibits narcotic traffickers from taking typical tax exemptions for business expenses. And Michael, you mentioned this earlier in the show. Yes, you have a group of state cannabis regulators asking Congress to change laws, and the Biden administration is moving to loosen restrictions on cannabis and potentially moving it to Schedule 3, which would free CRBs from the prohibitions against business deductions. But the outcome of these efforts remains to be seen and will no doubt face determined opponents. So my question to you, Michael, how would failure to reach alignment between states and the federal government hamper the growth of this market over the next five years? I'm not sure that anything can necessarily hamper the growth of the cannabis industry at this point. I think it's reached a critical mass in terms of the number of states that have legalized. I mean, short of like some sort of research coming out that changes the way that Americans have come to view cannabis over the last decade. But I think that the states continue to legalize and the industry continues to grow. I think the biggest question around the alignment between state and federal policy really comes to what the industry is going to look like. First, in terms of what does the federal government do? 
if they decide to regulate, or do they push regulatory authority to the states and allow the states to continue regulating cannabis as they've been doing since their respective legalizations? The other thing that's happening is that as these 280E provisions suffocate cannabis companies, you've seen large businesses, a lot of capital, especially that's moved in from the Canadian market because cannabis is legal up there and they can finance on the Canadian stock exchange. These companies have come in and they've started to buy up the licenses. And it almost looks like what you're watching is a game of who can bleed the longest and who's got the capital to control as many licenses as is possible while it's not a profitable business and hope that as soon as these regulatory changes, these 280 provisions and others go through, it turns from a business where everyone's in the red to everyone's in the black very quickly because it's purely regulatorily driven. And so I think the sooner that you see some sort of relief, the more likelihood that over the long run, you'll see a more equitable cannabis market with space for both the little guys and the big guys. But because of the way the licenses are structured, if this goes on for too much longer, I just see all these little guys getting gobbled up by the well-capitalized cannabis consortiums that are out there. Yeah, that's spot on, Michael, but the little guys being gobbled up. I think that until we get that equitable market in place, unfortunately, your prediction may come true. Also, I'm originally from Canada. My family is still in Canada. And one of the things Canadians wish is that the U.S. market doesn't federalize because <laughs> of the amount of revenue that is generated in the Canadian space based upon the U.S. companies financing in Canada. So thanks for sharing that. Conversely, how would even more alignment or just reclassification to Schedule 3 spur growth in the cannabis industry? And what would the impact be for the current makeup of carriers providing coverage? You know, one thing that I've definitely seen change from 2018 until 2023 is that they used to want all the bells and whistles in terms of coverages. They wanted to make sure that they were protected from the long tail, the short tail, you know, limited exclusions in their policies, and they were willing to pay up for it, the vast majority of these cannabis companies. But today, they just can't afford it, especially when they can't write off those costs. And not that they weren't always able to, but the margins were so good at the beginning that they could afford to really worry about their liabilities. And now they just don't have that luxury. I think if you saw 280E disappear with descheduling down the road, that that would hopefully bring things back to how they were and give cannabis companies enough breathing room to start hiring full-time risk managers again and to really get back to where they wanted to be when they set these business plans up. What advice would you give an insurer looking to enter the cannabis market? There's still probably some time to get into it. It's quickly becoming less opportunistic. I mean, we're spending a lot more of our time these days quoting traditional property here in California. But over the long run, it's a good industry. It's one you definitely want to understand. The policy forms end up being pretty unique just based on the fact that you've got really a mix of an industrial and an agricultural exposure all happening indoors. It's something you probably don't want to just jump into anymore, but there's still opportunities here and there in the space. On a personal level, Golden Bear is a family business, one that your grandfather founded and that your father currently leads. What makes your specific role so exciting for you? And we want to know what is the topic of dinner conversation with the extended family when you're not talking shop? We can't usually get through a family dinner without insurance coming up, but my youngest brother is 17. And when we bring up insurance, he starts screaming. So we spend a lot of time just talking about hobbies. I've got three brothers and there's 21 other cousins of mine in the Hall family. So we're a pretty large group. We spend a lot of time together skiing and fishing and really enjoying all the beauty that we have here in Northern California and on the West Coast. Yeah, well, we can't debate that. You're spot on with the beauty of the West Coast. Michael, thank you for your time 
time and incredible insights on ensuring the cannabis industry. You've shown us it's not just about ideas, it's about making ideas happen. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me on here today. Tune in next time for an all-new episode of Insure Talk with Laura Drabik, brought to you by Guidewire, the platform PNC insurers trust to engage, innovate, and grow efficiently. For more information, visit guidewire.com.